Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast all about food, body, sport, and mental health. Brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment program in Seattle, Washington. This podcast is all about bringing the themes of our work as clinicians into a wider conversation. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. Today, we've got the honor of having Sarah Taylor join us today as a guest, sharing the powerful story of her own recovery from an eating disorder. Sarah has been working at Opal for two years in community relations. You also probably have heard her name if you've listened to our closing credits all the way through. Sarah has been behind the scenes of The Appetite since we started, managing all production and doing all our editing. Sarah, I'm so delighted to have you on this side of the glass today. Thanks, Carter. (laughs) Yeah, welcome. So uh, this feels like such a treat to get to talk about your recovery story. (laughs) And um, I actually got to have some conversation with clients this morning talking Mm. about um, how desperate they are to hear more stories Mm. of recovery. So this feels like pretty cool timing just in Opal conversation lately, too. Oh, that's nice to hear. It like helps me settle in. Oh, good. (laughs) So maybe we should just dive in. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear kind of just where your eating disorder started and Mm -hmm. kind of the trajectory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I developed my eating disorder when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And then I went to treatment for three months at the time in Washington State, there wasn't any residential or inpatient treatment centers. My choices were the psych ward at Seattle Children's or going to Arizona to Remuda Ranch. So that's where I went. And I was there for three months. And then upon returning, I was medically stabilized. But I think, as we know with eating disorders, just because you're nourished doesn't mean that you are actually recovered. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So my real recovery, I feel like, didn't start till I was... Uh, in my early 20s and was working in a group of women that were talking about food and body and metaphor through the Eating in the Light of the Moon book by Anita Johnston. Which we did a podcast on. Yes, yes, with her, yeah. And uh, through that, I was really uh, able to begin actual recovery and healing and started to look at the world a little bit differently. And then I feel like my recovery... Even I don't even want to call it recovery at that point because it was more like just being a woman in the world. What do you mean by that? I mean, being a woman in a world that culturally defines us by how we look. So do you mean that you were kind of more actively thinking through the themes of your eating disorder and the work with your eating disorder? Mm-hmm. And then the next layer of the work mm-hmm. was kind of more general around managing and figuring out yeah. larger things? Yeah, I would say at some point there was this shift where it wasn't about not having eating disorder behaviors and not having to fit this ideal. And it was more about how do I just not get pulled into diet culture anymore? Mm. Because it shifted from diet culture being triggering to triggering me into like a a spiral that could potentially lead to like loss of my life to just being really harmful and being unhappy with myself because I lived in this world that wanted me to be that way. Mm. And I think coming to Opal was really where I was able to make a bigger shift of just working on myself to working with other people and doing the social justice part of that. 
which is why I say it's not really my recovery because I, I don't really know how to define that. Like I feel recovered. I feel like I'm in recovery, but in some ways I think most of the women in the Western world are kind of in a recovery because they're trying mm. to escape this culture that wants us to be small. Oh my goodness. I love that idea of it actually being this like constant active participation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love it and I hate it that that's what's required, but that sounds like the part that actually gets us all into a richer place of living, not yeah. just surviving. Yeah, definitely. And I think another big shift for me is like finding my anger in mm-hmm. all of that instead of being angry at myself for not fitting into this cultural expectation, mm-hmm. anger at the culture and the commercialization of women's bodies yeah. and it becoming uh, more of like a feminist activist role. And that really fires me up. Even when I feel, you know, I have my days where I have poor body image, I can think about like, that's not fair. And it's not, I know it's not about me now. And that's really kind of internalized in me. Oh my God, I'm smiling so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to back up a little bit though, because Mm -hmm. I want to hear, like there, I feel like I really want to get to some of the conversation about, about this kind of new phase of life and sort of the stuff that you've internalized at this point. But I also want to hear some more about like what what your eating disorder looked like back then and, and what those three months of treatment felt like for you and if you yeah. feel willing to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. My eating disorder, I like to say that my eating disorder developed out of like a lack of power and a lack of voice. Um, I grew up in a home with a lot of expectation. I was, I was, I was going to say I was required. I was not required, but it felt at the time it felt like I was required to participate in a lot of sports, which I enjoyed in the beginning. But over time, the demand was really challenging. I was a figure skater, which has a, a lot of expectations about what the body should look like. I was a figure skater. I also played volleyball and fast pitch, and I was in orchestra and music and busy school I was really busy for a a young girl Mm -hmm. I was really busy and it was really hard as I've gotten older I've known that something that I need for myself is downtime and I was never really granted that and if I asked for that the answer was no Mm. (laughs) yeah there was times in my life where I was getting up in the morning and skating before school, going to school, going straight to my after-school sport, and then getting picked up from there to go to another skating session, then getting home and doing homework and meals in the car. And and then, wow. yeah, and after a while, like I said, I asked to, to not do it anymore, and I was denied that. So I was denied, like, the right to say no and the right to have a voice in what I was doing with my days and with my life. And then... After a while, I don't know if it, I just accepted that or if I was able to find a little bit of control or power in just, okay, since I'm stuck here, I'm going to just be the best at it that I can be. So I started to become very perfectionistic in school. I uh, also started to become very perfectionistic in my sports, specifically with figure skating. Um, and one of those things was controlling my body and my food and my exercise and eventually that led to my family getting really scared and wanting me to receive treatment. I was actually very anti-recovery and really didn't want to go to treatment. I was really proud of my eating disorder and felt really connected to it and really safe with it. It had given me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It gave you your voice it sounds like. Yeah. You actually couldn't. Yeah and this and this like 
this power that I had never had before. My parents were afraid of me. They weren't, you know, they would let me do what I wanted because they were afraid, <laughs> which is so messed up, but it was, it was all I had at that time. And so I was sent to treatment. Wow. Do you remember at the time, like, what some of the reasoning was for, like, why you weren't allowed a break or, like, why things needed to be that busy? Or, like, I guess if there are messages underneath those demands? I'm not sure. I I think I just remember it being, like, this is, this is what the expectation is. And I don't know. I, yeah, I don't think I had like any sort of like this is the reasoning why but it was Mm -hmm. like that was just what I was supposed to do and I was supposed to do it well very well yeah yeah looking back on it now is a lot of pressure for for anyone pressure for me now (laughs) yeah 14 or 15 years old. yeah my goodness and and yet it also doesn't sound that different than some of the like kind of normative middle class expectations for a lot of kids these days Mm -hmm. Or at least even hearing parents feel pressure to get their kids really involved in a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I think about that. I think about the how kids can get into college nowadays, like the expectation <sighs> for them to be in athletics, extracurricular activities, clubs, and do well in school. And I just, I just know that for some students, there's extreme consequences for all of that. So when you went into treatment, you said that that was sort of – it sounded like that was a lot about getting medically stable mm-hmm. initially, and I imagine a lot of eating happening. But were there things that you felt like you were gaining at that time or wrestling with at that time mm-hmm. that did feel like kind of the first steps of, of growth for you? When I first decided to go to treatment, I, I was very anti-recovery, and I didn't want treatment, but I also didn't want to be around my family anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I was in a way kind of like, sweet, I'm getting out of here. And then when I arrived, I was like, oh, this is not sort of a sucks. vacation. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. sort of sucks. And I think the main thing that was really helpful for me in treatment was the community that I had received. Like, I don't, I don't think I could take anything home from like the therapy we did some anger work which is really helpful for me to this day but I think the main thing is the community that I still have like I it's been 15 years since I was there and I still stay connected with many of the people that I was in treatment with and just working with them and having this expectation of what what treatment would be like and then arriving and it being so different it being like a house and not this padded room and Mm -hmm. Everyone being very similar to me and having similar experiences. And I think adolescent treatment is so different. It's really hard to um, compare it to adult treatment like we would have at Opal because a lot of the adolescents don't have the awareness of the world to want recovery in the same way that an adult might want recovery, Um, which I think is part of my thing is that I just didn't have the awareness as a young human being. Yeah, it kind of makes sense that you would be anti-recovery because... Like you said, that was the one thing that you had. As an, as an adolescent, you really don't have too much. Um, yeah, I had nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it was all that was mine. But all that being said, being in treatment was really necessary for yeah. me. Like it was necessary for me to get physically nourished, which would have been impossible for me to do at home. I wouldn't be able to be medically monitored and cared for and also to have my parents be the one doing that work would be so hard on them, and it would be challenging for me to receive that. Um, but it also was planted the seeds and the beginning of 
this journey mm. to recovery. And all the deeper work that started from there. Yeah, 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 it really did start from there. And I think even if I didn't know it at the time, there might have been these little tiny like glints of therapy kind of working and making these little connections and that just slowly built mm-hmm. to what work I was eventually able to do. So I do think that treatment is so necessary and so important. And for some people, they can experience all of the growth that I experienced later on in life. They can experience that in a treatment setting. And some people, they just start in treatment. Yeah. Everyone's trajectory is so different. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel really curious about kind of all the work that happened after because it sounds Mm -hmm. like in a lot of ways that was something you had to do. The treatment part was something you had to do. And I'm imagining a lot of the story happened after that mm-hmm. from what you've said mm-hmm. so far. Mm-hmm. So you said that in your early 20s, you wound up really feeling like you were jumping into actual healing. And there are a lot of years in between. So what were you dealing with during those years in terms of your relationship to food and your body? And what made you start actually moving toward healing? Mm-hmm. It's really different than just mm-hmm. not using behaviors or Yeah, I think in between those years, the thing that kind of kept me, I I like to say medically stable, (laughs) because it feels like that feels so clinical and different than the actual healing, um, was when I got back, my family was very afraid. And it gave me like the freedom to do whatever I wanted, because I had this like power over them. And I had this power and I could do what I wanted. And So when I had that, I was able to care for myself and nourish myself. And I didn't need to use an eating disorder to give me any sense of myself. Um, So I was able to have like a rebellious teenage phase, (laughs) which is quite fun. (laughs) (laughs) Coming from this strict household of sport and school to be able to go and, you know, have a boyfriend and and spend time with my friends. It sounds sort of like a... It's, you know, kind of small version of Richie Rich. <laughs> yeah, 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 I guess so. But all of that wasn't really sustainable. Like, that was great for a while, and I felt really good in that, but it wasn't real. Like, it wasn't real power. It was just me being manipulative and, and mm. trying to maybe be hurtful even to my family. So after a while, like, the feeling of, feeling great and this is really what I want and I'm on my way had kind of dissipated and like I had a really difficult time in college I struggled a lot with depression and anxiety and those years kind of feel like a blur of just like getting through to the next day and then after college I I didn't feel like I still had an eating disorder like I felt like I was recovered but I just had this like distance with my body where I didn't want to talk about my body. I didn't want to look at my body. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to even talk about my eating disorder. Like, don't, mm. it's not a part of my life. I don't want it to be any, any part of my identity. And then I, f- for whatever reason, this amazing therapist in Bellingham where I lived decided to do this series based on eating in the light of the moon. Mm. And my friend was doing it and she invited me to do it with her. And we started to look at our bodies and food and power and all those things through metaphor. And it like opened up this whole new world of of like spirituality and thinking about my body in a different way and thinking about other women in a different way that I had never experienced before or even thought. I'd never, I feel like I was never told 
I, like, I knew this intellectually, but I was never told that, okay, your eating disorder is not about changing the shape of your body. Like, that's not why you have an eating disorder. Whoa. And that's not what the eating disorder is. Like, there are all these other things that you are doing through this eating disorder. And that the eating disorder is giving you something. It's, in a way, it's kind of caring for you in a way that you can't care for yourself. So we don't have to hate on the eating disorder and in this way. Like, we can say thank you and let it go. Man, <laughs> I feel so glad that – I mean, that feels like such a beautiful gift to finally get that understanding after all those years. Mm-hmm. And sounds also like sort of a perfect timing where it was something that you were still choosing because I think I hear so many stories about, yeah, maybe learning that at a time where – you're still really wanting to hold on to behaviors. And you're like, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, it's about other stuff, but. And that's something that I hear a lot from clients or from other people in recovery is that it's it takes a long time to recover, mm-hmm. and there's a reason for that. And I couldn't have encountered this group and this book, you know, 10 years prior or three years prior or even maybe six months prior. Like it came to me at the right time when I was ready for it. And I'm so grateful that I had that time in between, even though it was painful and it was hard. It's important to have it at the right time. Mm -hmm. And this book and this therapist and this group of women that I did this group with came to me when I needed them and when I was ready for it Mm -hmm. and could take that in in that way. Yeah. So what did you start doing with all of the awareness that you had suddenly about metaphor, like the new way that you were seeing women and yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I am definitely over control via RODBT. So I took it quite literally. (laughs) (laughs) And I I mean, I was, I would be eating a certain food and I would just, my mind would be like, okay, what, why do we like this food? What do we like about it? What does it mean? It's salty. And, you know, Anita Johnston says, these type of foods mean these things. So I was like trying to think through all of that which I think I've been able to be a lot more flexible on that now and relax in that. But in the beginning, it was a little bit, I take things a little bit too seriously. (laughs) (laughs) So it's always good for me to have, I think that's another thing about time is if you're over control like me, you need some space from when you first receive the information to when you actually see it like working in reality. Because it's not an intellectual process. It's It's not not something you can force upon yourself. So yeah. Yeah. Integration takes mm-hmm. a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I got this information. It really opened up like a whole new world. Also in spirituality and in like, I like to call it like woo woo therapy. <laughs> and like we would meditate in this group and I'd never meditated before. And I didn't really understand that it could actually do things for me. What did it do for you? It, it kind of, um, I feel like it, it cleared this fog in me. And allowed me to connect to, you know, my gut and my intuition and even other parts of myself. You know, we talk in the book, we talk about like the the different archetypes, the child, the mother, maiden Mm -hmm. and the the crone. And to connect to those parts of me was like this bizarre experience that actually happened, but was really helpful. And can you say more about those archetypes in your life? Sure. In the group that I did, we... We, in a meditation, we had like a tea party and you're just visualizing these things and um, you might visualize something different for each archetype and every person in the group is going to be visualizing something differently. And those things are little symbols that you, that you can take and you can interpret and you can use. 
so we have the the child who is a child, the maiden who for me is about teenager, the mother, which doesn't necessarily mean mother, it could be mothering of anything. For me, I think it's more mothering of myself. Mm-hmm. So I would say that I'm currently in a mother phase. And then the crone is the the older, wise woman um, who I really, really benefited from. I loved being with the crone and um, I had a lot of sadness for the maiden who was really struggling, the teenage version of me. And then the the child, I feel like I could really connect with the child and see the parts of myself that were there before they got shut down by conditioning or expectation. And is that like a good Yes, I, okay. I feel sort of tearful about that just because mm-hmm. I think that um, I mean, for me as well, in my own process of healing and just becoming more of myself, those ideas of really, I mean, I, I wouldn't have used that language before. I definitely have thought through archetypes, but the the process of somehow getting in touch with these different parts of self has been incredibly transformative. Mm-hmm. I think I had a similar experience with um, with my writing process, which I've shared about some on the podcast, but I just, I would use the writing as a way to kind of meditate and get closer to myself. And eventually it felt like there were these different voices that were sort of popping up, parts of me that felt really, really young, and then parts Mm -hmm. of me that seemed wise beyond my years, wisdom that would come out of me all of a sudden that I didn't know was there. (laughs) And so, you know, I was able to kind of start mothering myself through that process as well. So I would just really resonate with that. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard to to even want, well, not even, to, I was going to say it's hard to want more out of life without, uh, I think what I'm trying to say is that I, I think that it's really hard to, to really position ourselves toward compassion for ourselves if we're not aware of all these different parts of self-functioning for really distinctive reasons Mm -hmm. and going through the process of validating and understanding and being curious about what each part of us is playing out and why and then how to interact with all those things. How do you talk to yourself when you're acting like a teenager? How do you talk to yourself when you just feel like a raw child with no words, you know? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the culture can be really dismissive of that Mm -hmm. and – it being kind of like I said before kind of woo woo but it's for me it's really worked even in those moments where I'm like this is weird I am actually having a conversation with a four-year-old self inside me like Mm -hmm. what is happening but it works and that four-year-old self is like free and loud and likes to play and sometimes I need to tap into her and ask her what she thinks I should do in this situation or what she wants to do today and it's really freeing to kind of break down all of the things that have been put on me when I was a teenager and when I was a maiden and even now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I get why that sounds woo-woo, but I also think even from a psychological perspective, there are parts of us that are unintegrated, memories Mm -hmm. that are unintegrated into our sense of self, things that happened when we're four years old that we haven't been able to process because it was, or, or two we're pre-verbal. I mean, all that stuff actually exists inside of our bodies still um, and the emotional memory. And like those parts of us are older than our current self. So to not do work around having conversations with those parts that maybe 
are still showing up all the time, but we don't think they should. I mean, yeah. we should talk about it. Like, yeah. we should talk to ourselves about it. I know. See what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that in because I don't have, like, psychology training. Yeah. <laughs> so I never know. I don't know. I think I I maybe have. I, again, I grew up in this household. Like, again, I was in treatment for for three months, and then I was in therapy forever, and I live in a family that no one else will go. Mm-hmm. when they need to. I live in a world where I didn't have friends that were going to therapy as well until after college. Wow. I just, yeah. whatever community I grew up with didn't value that. And sometimes I feel like I have to have a disclaimer about my process, which isn't fair. Yeah. 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 But it yeah. is, I mean, I think I started going to therapy at a young age too. I definitely didn't know anyone that yeah. was going. You yeah. don't necessarily talk <laughs> okay. about that at school. <laughs> Maybe it's rare, too, but you're not talking about it at school, probably. So um, I want to hear some more, too, about, like, after after this work was happening for you and you were becoming closer to yourself in these ways, where that started translating into some of the activism you spoke Mm -hmm. of earlier. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I really don't think that I started to be really active in it until I started here at Opal. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with health at every size and not really – I've never heard of it before. Before but, Opal? Before Opal. And and the job at Opal really kind of fell into my lap. I never wanted to work in eating disorder treatment. I didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> and then I moved to Seattle, and I think I saw a posting online from some other treatment center. And I was like, oh, I'm going to look around it and see. And this the one at Opal was like the hours I wanted. I had the experience – I had an eating disorder <laughs> recovery story, so I felt like I could relate really well. But um, but it, it ended up being really a wonderful gift for me because part of my job is to do social media. And Opal is also does its best to be involved in the social justice piece of the body liberation movement and weight discrimination. And so I was working with Julie, who's really involved with that, and learning about the projects that she was working on, as well as what's going on around the country, and then reading all of these stories of people who have been so harmed by the way our culture wants women's bodies to be. Mm -hmm. And just reading these stories and reading what other people were doing and reading articles on you know weight science and metabolism and and health at every size and it just it made me really angry and not a lot of things ever made me angry (laughs) that was an emotion that I really kept in check and I I suddenly it wasn't my fault that I struggled with an eating disorder and it wasn't my fault that I felt this way about my body and it wasn't, I mean, it's not anybody's fault, but it's just this accumulation of this culture that we have. And it suddenly, I felt so, so much like energy to help other people not experience this. And I feel like it was, it's getting worse Mm -hmm. where disordered eating is so normalized and encouraged that it, it makes me really nervous and afraid for the young people of the world, that this is what they might have to grow up in. And then to learn about intuitive eating and, and you know, even Julie's perspective on eating, just it just clicked. It felt so like 
like, duh. <laughs> duh. Like, this makes so much sense. And and starting to do that work just opened up a whole new piece of, I guess I'd call it recovery, but it, again, like, I don't even know how to define where I am in that timeline, but um, it just opened up this whole new door, and it feels really like like what the whole eating disorder journey has been for me, what it's supposed to lead to, hmm. is to not just prevent eating disorders in other people, but also say, no, the whole system is wrong, and the whole way that we are yeah. looking at women's bodies and people's bodies in general is not, it's not right, it's not moral, it's not ethical, and it's kind of doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. One thing that really strikes me about what you're saying is um, the amount of anger you're talking about now and the amount of anger you're talking about at the beginning of your story, too. Yeah. And yeah. it's really cool to hear about how that has sort of shown up again in this really different, really um, empathetic way as well, mm -hmm. that you were raging against something as a kid and also are raging against something now. And I don't know. I think working with people with eating disorders so uh, so much of the time, I'm like, you have so much energy. Like you have <laughs> energy maybe isn't necessarily always the word, but like you have so much emotion. Like You're feeling fire. so much. Yes. Clearly there is a fire in you that is making you do these things to yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is that about? Where did that fire come from? What are you mad about? What are you so sad about? And I have a I have a feeling that's not actually about you. Mm -hmm. Like it's so misdirected. It's often so misdirected. And so to to hear your story start from like a rebellion <laughs> and then also for you now to have this rebellion in you uh, against like society, culture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I'm losing the words, but yeah. um, pop there culture. Are words. There yeah. are a lot of words for it, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just it's exciting to hear about that um, mm -hmm. transformation. I think also because even through your work with Eating in the Light of the Moon as well, I imagine that being a process of of building a lot more compassion and understanding for yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to then start getting engaged in the world if you haven't also developed some compassion for yourself first. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of compassion we need to dole out. And if you don't feel like you have enough for yourself, then of course you're maybe impatient with all the plight of the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks, Carter, for yeah. for illuminating that for me because I think that's true is that like that fire at the time was destructive and it it was towards myself and it was towards my family and and for our other clients that might be feeling that destruction towards themselves like that's still something that can be used mm -hmm. and it might take some time and it's okay that's not happening right now like let it take the course it needs to take and it can eventually really help other people and yeah, you talked about it um, in this interesting way when you were just describing this as um, like you're not no, you don't know where you are in your process of recovery. Is what you said, mm -hmm. and I definitely think of you as like recovered. Which I think the difference between those two words in recovery versus recovered, yeah, it, up for debate among a lot of people in terms of what what that means. But the way you were describing it sounds sort of like you're still in a process of awakening. Mm -hmm. Like it's this kind of unfolding of all these different layers around what it means to be a woman in the world, like you said, and what it means to be in this world and all the different layers of interacting with the external and the internal and how those two things are constantly at play. If you're engaged 
there's more to learn about yourself. And if you're learning about yourself, there's probably more to engage with outside of yourself, too. I don't know if that resonates with yeah, you. But. Yeah, I, I think I always struggle with, like, people say, in recovery or recovery. And I just I'm like, it's all just a timeline. Like, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen in five years. Like, I don't feel like I – it feels there's not really words to describe what it's like to be in a body that at one point decided to do this. I decided <laughs> to do this with my body, and now this is how I am in my body. And It's like being open and being in dialogue with yourself. Yeah, and, and I just don't think that there's – like, you can put those things in a box. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so much grayer than that. Mm. I like that perspective. I think that um, I really believe in people like reaching a point where they're not actually actively struggling with behaviors anymore and that they're like probably not going to go back to those behaviors anymore at a certain point. Mm -hmm. But I also think that I've struggled sometimes hearing people just say recovered full full stop because I like the language of constant process Mm -hmm. and assuming that there will be growth and there will be change required constantly as you react to your life (laughs) Um, and that being in a body is part of that. Yeah. And we live in a world that has a lot to say about being in your body, Mm -hmm. whether you like your body or don't like your body, you know, you can't really go right here. So it's going to be a conversation (laughs) unless you are isolate yourself from the world. It's going to, it's going to continue to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's not all the painful struggle of being deep, deep, deep in your eating disorder. And that's just something that I always hope people can hear is that, yes, it takes a long time to recover, but it's not always like this. Right. And this, when you look back on it, it's going to look different than it feels right now, too. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's so obvious in a lot of eating disorders across the board is this current or this theme of perfectionism. And that's not the Mm -hmm. case for everybody. It's really not the case for everybody. But I think that there's either some sort of perfectionism or some sort of comparison that happens in the realm of eating disorders, even if that's just coming from a place of emotional loneliness. And so I think that it can be normal for people to maybe assume that their story should also look like somebody else's. Their body should look like somebody else's. Their story should look like somebody else's. The trajectory of their treatment should be a certain way or it should be good or they should be on point with it or all of that. And it's just, I would hope, you know, the main point would be that people actually become connected to themselves. So both in hearing the stories and doing their own recovery, my hope would be that for listeners and for people on any sort of journey of healing and getting to know themselves, that can be the main reminder that it's work (laughs) to be done about you. And unfortunately, the saddest part about life is there's no roadmap for you in particular. Yeah, you kind of got to make it up. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because that really clicks for me just because what started to work for me was when I went against everything that I thought was going to be, quote unquote, the right thing to do. When I went to this group that was like hippie and meditating (laughs) and and it worked and it was like, wow, this is my thing. Like nobody in my world does this. And that really started me off on really moving forward on this path instead of kind of just wandering around trying to find, quote unquote, the perfect solution. Right. Yeah. And that's often the thing that gets people in some sort of cycle of disordered eating or addictive behavior in general is that they don't they don't know. It's like an identity crisis in a lot of ways a lot of the time. And so to then think that you're going to solve that problem by taking on someone else's journey 
mm-hmm. someone else's like prescription for what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of backwards. And instead, I think that, you know, the point is, who are you? Who are you and what do you need? And how can you engage your life and your particularity and your story in a way that's going to be really honoring of that story and that particularity? So I think that it's really cool that in your story you did move towards something that seemed off the beaten path and unusual even for you and and that it wound up resonating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that in my in my story of of healing in general and in my relationship to food as well, like I've said so many times on here, writing was a big part of that. And it was a place for me to figure out like, well, what do I think in particular? What do I need in particular in this moment? And it got me answering those questions over and over again. And it helped me form a stronger and stronger sense of self to be responding to and to then creatively craft my life from there. Yeah. My journey. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I do want to have a longer conversation about what it means to be consistently and always in a body in a Mm -hmm. world that has a lot to say about bodies. Just like you said. Because there's so much happening right now, too, where I feel like a lot of the politics that we are – Um, entrenched Mm -hmm. in are at the core sort of politics around the body Mm -hmm. um, where there's so much happening in response to race and ethnicity and country and size and gender and feels like a time that it's about in a really overt way about Mm -hmm. the body and Mm -hmm. and I think that it often and always has been but I think that pop culture has more language to deal with that than it has previously and so I do feel sometimes like we're kind of at war with bodies right now. And that feels heartbreaking to, even in my own process, be aware of going through all these different layers of relationship to myself and my weight and my shape and my race and my culture and all these different things. And that that those stories and those narratives just will keep, you know, we're going to just keep cycling through those mm-hmm. narratives. I will keep cycling through the narratives of what it means to be in my particular body as my particular race, as my particular mm-hmm. like positionality in the world. And mm-hmm. being engaged means doing that work consistently. Yeah. And there's just so much, there's so much work to do. Mm-hmm. There's so much to be inclusive. And, you know, even in eating disorder treatment, like I was really lucky that I could even go to treatment or that I even got diagnosed right. because people of color people in larger size bodies they don't get diagnosed and at that time not at all Mm. (sighs) I don't know I get excited about like talking about eating disorders because it it feels like when you're engaged in the story of someone's recovery it's really hard to then not go into all of these Mm -hmm. bigger themes and bigger experiences of the world too because I think that again like the politics of our own bodies as we engage ourselves one-on-one they're all there already like yeah. all the all the struggle that we're feeling from the outside world and yeah. the fact that we get to like engage power or engage rebellion or engage grief through yeah. our body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, too. Um, just, you know, I've had a couple of people be like, be like, well, things are a lot better now, aren't they? And I'm like, no, people are starting to have a little bit of voice, maybe, but things are not better now. Mm. <laughs> and. I feel really grateful to work in a place where I have been able to have a voice and I have a lot of cautious hope <laughs> mm. for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Cautious hope. Cautious hope. I mean, I think that's also part of my over-control tendency <laughs> is to always be cautious. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I so mean, I guess we could, we could like cross that out and say hopeful. I'm hopeful. Well, caution is good too. But <laughs> it allows you to engage with thought. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Sarah Taylor, not just for sharing herself with us today, but also for production assistance and all of our editing. Stay in touch with what's new on the Appetite by subscribing to the podcast on your preferred podcast app. If you have the time, we also love getting reviews of the podcast. So write a little something or rather to us and let us know how you're liking it. If you have any questions or just want to connect, email us at theappetite at opalfoodandbody.com. If you feel like you're struggling or you want to learn more about Opal in general, please find us at opalfoodandbody.com to learn more about our treatment program and just to get a little bit of a better sense of our culture. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.